Well, if you are a guest this morning, again, we are jumping back into our study of Philippians this morning. We've been in this book for four or five weeks now, and we start this morning picking it up back up again in verse 12. And just by way of reminder, uh, Philippians is a, a letter from Paul written to this church of Philippi which is actually a real place. Uh, you can go there today, but Philippi, by reminder, is, my pointer works here, is way up here in the Mediterranean. Uh, Israel is uh, over here, so Paul has traveled in his second missionary journey. My laser point, pointer is going out here. Uh, but Paul has traveled up this way and eventually made his way to Philippi. Yeah, I need a new laser pointer. That's no good. You see it though, right? Wah, wah. Anyway, you see it up there, uh, Philippi, real place. You can go there even today uh, and see uh, ruins of Philippi. Paul is not in Philippi as he writes this. He's actually uh, in Rome, most scholars think, which is way over off the screen. Uh, but Paul is writing about 10 years after he has visited Philippi. He's writing this about 60 AD. He traveled through Philippi about 50 AD. You can find that story in Acts chapter uh, 16. We looked at that in previous weeks, but the background there is in Acts chapter 16. And just kind of where we've been the past weeks, we spent a couple uh, weeks prior to this talking about the introduction of Philippians in verses 1 and 2. We saw that uh, he calls himself a servant. An apostle, the apostle Paul, the great preacher, the great ambassador of Jesus calls himself not an apostle, but in this letter, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus. And he calls this ragtag group of believers in Philippi, he calls them saints. And we talked about the significance of that, that as we follow Jesus, as we believe in Jesus, we are both servants and saints. We need to know both of those things uh, about ourselves, about our identity. He goes on in verses three through seven, we talked about how the Philippian church had supported uh, Paul in his ministry. Not only had they partaken of the gospel themselves, but they had become partners in spreading the gospel and sharing the gospel. And last week, we looked at the end of Paul's prayer, verses eight through 11, where he prays uh, and shows great affection for his partners in the gospel of the church uh, at Philippi. So this morning we move on, and as we transition uh, from verse 11 to verse 12, Paul kind of transitions in the first chapter. He moves from talking about them to talking about him, to talking about his circumstances, his situation at the moment, which uh, quite honestly is not the best of circumstances. We'll see that uh, here in a moment. So I'm gonna read for us uh, verses 12 through 18, and then uh, ask you a question, and we'll jump right in here, okay? So if you've got a Bible, would love for you to be in the Bible, uh, have your nose in the Bible, whether it's an electronic one or an old-fashioned paper kind. There should be some Bibles around you, but join me, Philippians chapter 1, and we are just going to zoom today through uh, verses 12 through 18, okay? 12 through 18, I'm reading from the ESV translation, Okay. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Amen. God's word. Before we kind of dive in here and look at those verses, verse by verse here, I want to begin by asking you a question. And uh, it's a simple question. I'll give you a few seconds to think about it here. But as you sit here this morning, who or what has influenced your life the greatest? Who or what has influenced your life the greatest? You don't have to answer out loud, but let me even be more specific with the question. But how about this? Who or what has influenced your life the greatest spiritually? Think about that for a moment. What has been the primary influence? What has been the greatest impact in your life? What or who has that come from? And here is my point. Here is my uh, conviction this morning. 95% of us, as we answer that question, will not answer with a what, but we will answer with a who. In other words, it's not a thing that has impacted us the most, but it's a person. For probably nearly 95, 98% of the people in this room, what makes the biggest difference in your life is not a place you've been, it's not a tweet that you read or a meme that you read, or it's not an email that you received. It's not one of those emails that you received that said, hey, forward this on to 10 people and you'll avoid the flames of hell, that kind of really encouraging email. That doesn't change people's lives. Uh, it hasn't been a movie for most of us. It, it hasn't been a book. What, what mostly, most often has the greatest influence in our lives is not a thing, but a person. And in this passage this morning, we see that the Apostle Paul, this great servant of Jesus, had a huge impact, had a huge influence, not only on the church of Philippi, but on the pagan guards that surrounded him as he was in prison. People have the biggest influence in our life, and you can in turn have an influence in other people's lives through using your circumstances intentionally as we see Paul do here in this passage, okay? So we begin, with that in mind, we begin at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Again, they are concerned about Paul. They are concerned about him. They have have sent a messenger to Paul, Epaphroditus, uh, one of their friends. They're concerned, they've heard about his circumstances. He, he says, I want you to know brothers, and here he calls them brothers. Earlier he had called them saints, right? But here he has that affectionate word, that family word, brothers. I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him at the time of this writing? What is his situation? Well, his situation is that he's imprisoned, He's chained to a Roman guard. Most scholars think that he's writing this from Rome and he's, he's, he's got chains on. He's, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Not the best of circumstances, not a situation that you would hope for to be imprisoned, right? But Paul has this wonderful outlook because he knows God's sovereignty. He knows God's goodness and he sees what has happened here Although it seems like a setback for my preaching, 
has really, has really served to advance the gospel. The circumstances that you look at, the circumstances that you hear have happened to me have really turned out for good for the advance of the gospel. The title of today's message is Advance the Gospel. Paul has this hopeful, purposeful mindset about what is going on in his life, even though from the outside looking in, it looks bad. He's in jail. The guy that's supposed to be out preaching is, is chained to a Roman guard, but how does he see it? He sees it not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. Look at what God has sovereignly done. Look where he has sovereignly put me. Because now, though I can't preach out in the streets or at the synagogues or at the places where the philosophers gather, but now God has given me this opportunity in prison. And he looks at it not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity to preach Christ right where he is, imprisoned. Paul could, like us, say, God, what's going on here? I mean, I've been faithful. I'm I'm your man. I'm I'm speaking of you for the people that you have uh, put in the world. I'm your spokesman. Why have you let me be put in prison? That's not fair. God must be judging me. What have I done wrong? He'd done nothing wrong except be obedient. And and, and here he finds himself in, in a dungeon changed to a guard. Our obedience doesn't guarantee us a easy life. God's sovereignty doesn't promise that we won't have trials. But Paul's, Paul's attitude here, Paul's outlook is that he is going to live intentionally. Live intentionally, no matter what circumstances come his way. He's going to look at it as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 29, you might flip with me there. Look at his words in verse 29. says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God, I've been obedient, Paul says. I've been obedient. I've been preaching. Why should I be suffering? That's not the question on Paul's mind. He's confident here as he says in verse 29, if you believe in Christ, you'll also face trials. You'll also suffer for my name. So he finds himself in this situation that he wouldn't have wanted, but in it he finds a way still to do God's work, to use his circumstances to serve a greater cause. He's going to live with the intention of representing Jesus no matter where he is. For us this morning, we all come in here this morning, we have circumstances. We have stuff that on the surface looks like a trial, and maybe it is. You sit here this morning and you may feel metaphorically that you're bound in chains. God, this is not where I want to be. This is not the situation that I had hoped for my company for my career, for my marriage. You feel chained. Perhaps you feel imprisoned. But we can take our cue from Paul who sees that all situations, he has seen God's sovereignty. And he says that in God's sovereignty, he is working to advance the gospel. And God is working in my situations that look like a a problem, that look like they belong in the debit category. But he's saying they're being used to advance the gospel. What are your chains? 
What are your setbacks this morning that perhaps you are overlooking as an opportunity to represent Christ? That's Paul's mission. He's going to say later in the chapter, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whether I'm out preaching or whether I'm imprisoned, I'm going to speak up for Jesus. He's going to live with intention. Do we live intentionally to represent Jesus? Not only did he live intentionally, but he leveraged his influence. Hey, here's a, here's a guy that's chained to a prisoner. So what do you think the apostle Paul does chained to a prisoner? What do you think that prisoner hears about? Jesus, he hears about, about Paul as he prays, as he writes these letters, he's able to receive visitors under this imprisonment. He's able to write letters. And what do you think he's talking to those guys that are guarding him about? He's telling them the story of Jesus. He leverages his influence, even in this dire, unfortunate situation from the outside, he uses it as an opportunity to spread the gospel. Paul's ministry took him to a place he didn't deserve. And in it, he found an opportunity he hadn't imagined. And through it, he made an impact he couldn't measure. Did it look good on the surface? No. Was it what he wanted? No. But he used it intentionally to leverage his influence and make a difference for Jesus. This imperial guard, as most scholars, I said, probably believe that he's in Rome and these, these imperial guard were perhaps guards for, for the emperor himself. And what is happening here strategically in the spread of the gospel, Paul is now in this place of power and prominence in Rome and the very guards of the emperor are hearing this story and it's able to trickle up to those of higher power, even though he's chained. He says in verse 13, it has become well known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The guards and the other prisoners, no, he's, he's not in prison because he did something wrong. He's imprisoned because of his claims about this Jesus. They know that his imprisonment is not about something he's done wrong, but about someone he has been preaching about, Jesus. My imprisonment has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Who are the all the rest? Well, it could be that it's to the believers in Rome. Other believers in Rome were now being encouraged and now having greater uh, boldness to speak about Jesus because they saw what Paul was going through, right? Hey, if he, if he can be bold, if he can keep his faith as he's been imprisoned, perhaps I can go on and share the faith more boldly, right? One of you shared with me last week or the week before that you had called a friend of, of 30-something years who was going through a really hard time, had lost a child. And you confessed to me that I, I was calling this dear friend to encourage that person. And what happened is her faith, her strength in this, tri in this trial ended up encouraging me. I was reaching out to encourage her, but her strength in this trial, in this time of adversity, in this time of loss of a son or daughter actually ended up encouraging me. That's what's going on here in Rome. If Paul can be faithful in prison, then I can be faithful free. Amen. He's living intentionally. He's leveraging his influence, not to seekers at a synagogue, not to people at a marketplace, 
but to fellow prisoners and to fellow guard. He's using that influence. Uh, I like to play a good game of hide-and-seek. I like to think that I'm a pretty uh, decent hide-and-seeker. And I've had a strategy in my years of uh, playing hide-and-seek that seems to work uh, fairly well. And that is when my kids uh, want me to go hide and they want to come find me, instead of going and hiding the, the furthest place I can find, I change the strategy and I try to find a place right around the corner, as close to them as I can, because I've found that when people play hide-and-seek, often what happens is they don't even look right where they are. They just immediately go off far, Right? Why do I share that story? I share that because I think in our desire to make a difference for Christ, often we run past the people that need the gospel, the people that we need to minister to that are right under our nose, that are right around the corner. Here, Paul, he's chained. He's bound. But what's he going to do? He's going to talk the ear off this guy that's chained to him. He's going to use it as an opportunity We talk as a church family about how we want to be ministers and missionaries. We want to make a difference, a concrete difference in this world, both in our community and beyond our community. We say often that we want to reach the nations as well as our neighbors. Well, are we seizing those opportunities or are we, are we, are we thinking, well, man, to make a difference, I got to send some money to Haiti or I got I to go to Africa or I got to go to the Middle East. Those are great things. We want to be about the nations, but we also don't want to just speed past the people that are right around the corner from us, that are the people that are next door to you, the people that you work with. I'm not going to go to your place of work on Monday. I'm not going to go back to your house this afternoon and live my week on your street, but you are. And God wants each of us to leverage our influence right where we are for his good, for the spread of the gospel. So what are your circles of influence? All of us have different circles of influence. We, we have a circle of influence that's, that's our family. Sometimes that's uh, the most difficult circle of influence to minister to. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We also have professional circles. We have a, we have a work circle that, where we have influence that we can leverage. We probably have a neighborhood circle, friendships, social circles. For many of us, it's because our kids are in activities, whether it's soccer or baseball or whatever. We have another circle of influence where we can impact people right next to us. Do we want to impact the nations? Yes, but we have people right next to us that we can pray for that we can care for. Does this mean that every time you go to soccer practice, you're pulling out your tract and sharing the four laws and and pulling out your Bible to share uh, your faith with the guy sitting right next to you? No, it may not mean that. But at least it could mean this. It could mean before you get out of your car at soccer practice, you could say, Lord, open my eyes to opportunities that I might have here. Give me a heart of compassion for someone here that might be hurting for someone that I can pray with, for someone that I can invite to church, for someone that I can set up a coffee with. They're right there. Paul is leveraging his influence. He is using his circumstances to spread the gospel. And yes, we need to reach the nations, but we don't want to run right past our neighbors, past our coworkers, past our families to make a difference. Maybe you've heard this quote, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. 
And if you're not faithfully sharing Jesus with the people next door to you, if you're not faithfully sharing Jesus with other people in your circle of influence, why should you go to Haiti to share Jesus if you're not even doing it with the people that are right in your backyard, right under your nose? Leverage your influence. Use your opportunities. Finally, Live intentionally, leverage your influence, and thirdly, leave an impact. Leave an impact. Look at verses 14 through 18 with me again. He says in verse 14, we see his impact. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then he goes on, he's, he goes on to talk about this opposition that he has in verses 15 through 18. He says, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some are preaching from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What is he talking about here? Commentators have had some confusion about what he is talking about here, but he, Paul is, he is rejoicing that Jesus is being proclaimed. Through him in the, around the imperial guard, he's, he's rejoicing that other people now, because of his situation, are being more bold. He's rejoicing in that. He's also rejoicing in the fact that there are some people that are kind of giving him a hard time. They're preaching Christ, but they're doing it, he says, out of ill motives. What is this all about? What, why would they be doing that? Well, some Bible scholars have said that perhaps there were people in the church of Rome that because Paul was in prison, they were wanting to get more position, get more influence themselves in the local church. And so they're becoming bold, not out of uh, the goodness of their heart or not in in an attempt to advance the gospel, but to advance themselves. Hey, Paul's in prison, so I can get some power here. They're doing it out of envy, out of rivalry, out of selfish ambition. They have wrong motives. And yet, Paul in his optimism, in his honest optimism can say, but yet I still rejoice because Christ Christ is being proclaimed. Can you rejoice, can I rejoice when Christ is proclaimed and revival comes but it's not in my church. It's in the church down the street. Can I rejoice when I see a guy on TV that I think, I think maybe he's out for money, but he's preaching Christ? And not just motives, okay, but methods. Maybe this doesn't mean as, as much to you as it, as it does to preacher guys. But uh, there's lots of different ways to proclaim Christ. There's lots of different ways to do ministry and ways that, that, that kind of, you know, make me squirm. There was a guy that would come to our college campus uh, every year and stand up on a stool and preach at the Greek system, all the fraternities and sororities as they walked by, and I mean <laughs> preach judgment that they need to repent and trust Christ. I didn't like his method. I questioned his motive, but can I rejoice with Paul that Christ has preached? Hard. I have a friend uh, in his 20s. 
when he was in his 20s, I should say, uh, was not following Christ, was not a Christian, was, not, was very lost, was probably uh, depressed, and uh, just career aimless, just life aimless, just a lost guy. And uh, whether he was half drunk or totally cognizant or whatever, one night uh, in his depression, in his stupor, about midnight, he saw this TV preacher come on and he lost it. He fell on the floor, he fell on the carpet and prayed to receive Christ with this TV preacher that was on at midnight. Well, he, he went on to follow Christ. He went on to go to seminary, become a children's minister himself, to go into full-time ministry. And he would tell you that that guy that led me to Christ, that TV preacher that told me about Jesus, was a whack job. <laughs> I mean, he's crazy. I would never preach like that myself. But God used a fallible, perhaps ill-motivated TV preacher to bring a guy to faith in Jesus. There's going to be a lot of different types of churches. There's going to be a lot of different types of ministries. If they preach truth, if they preach the gospel, they may do it a hundred different ways than we do. They may be, do it in a way that you might be uh, somewhat uncomfortable with. But can we rejoice with Paul that Christ is being proclaimed? Amen. We... Uh, we say, around, we say around here a lot that we want to make followers, ministers, and missionaries of the gospel. That every believer is a minister and missionary of Jesus. It's not just up to the Apostle Paul. It's not just the preacher up here. It's not just elders. It's not just paid staff people. But we are all ministers and missionaries of Jesus. I was, I was reminded this morning, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, 13. Paul writes there, he says that God gave some as pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of service. Pastors and teachers and elders to equip the saints for the work of service. What does that mean? That means you, saints are ministers and missionaries, that you have influence, that you need to leverage, that you have people that you're going to see that I will never come in contact with, that you have an, a, an outlook, an opportunity that no one else in this room has that is specifically, strategically, sovereignly for you. I'm not going to go to your cubicle Monday morning. I'm not going to live on your street this week. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to experience the chains that you might be experiencing right now. But what I can tell you is this, is that God is sovereign and he has placed you where you are to make an impact, to leverage your influence and leave an impact. Most of you know that there was a tragedy a couple weeks ago in our community uh, with a family that lives just up the street from our church here. And I was called into this situation through a, a couple weird things that happened when I was able to minister uh, at the candlelight vigil there. But one of the things I was really impressed about uh, as I ministered in this real time of hurt in our community was the wonderful job that the church, that the Christians on their street did about coming around this family in a very, very difficult situation and being the hands and feet of Jesus to them. And these are people from multiple churches 
in our community that made sure they had what they need, that began getting meals figured out, began to get childcare figured out, and just came and loved on this family. That's what we're supposed to be about. Making a difference with our neighbors, making a difference to the nations. But my challenge for us this morning here, as we gather this morning, is if there was a tragedy on your street this week, God forbid there was a tragedy on your street this week, would you know the names of your neighbors on your street? Would you know the names of their kids to reach out to them? See, I've said before, and I say it again, I think one of the things that's going to make uh, Christianity so potent, so influential, so powerful in the months and years to come is that because Jesus came in flesh, that we go in flesh and that we love and that we dine and that we invite people into our homes and that we're radically relational to care for other people because it's the model of Jesus. And for too many of us, it's pull the car in the garage, put the garage door down, go in the house, go out back. Fences are high. Jesus said, go into the world. Use every opportunity you have as a platform, as a vehicle to influence people for Jesus. It doesn't mean that you're going to pull out the Bible every time and, and, and have them pray a prayer to trust Jesus right there. But again, that you go into your neighborhood, that you go into work tomorrow and say, God, give me eyes and give me compassion to be your minister and your missionary to a very broken, very hurting world. Do you know your neighbors? Do your neighbors know that you care? It's been said before, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. There was not a guard chained to Paul that didn't hear sometime about Jesus. It may not, have, may not have happened in the first five minutes, but folks, how long will it take for you in your department, in the HOA, on your street, how long will it take till people know that person is a minister of Jesus, a missionary for Jesus? I can tell by the way they care. I can tell by the way they speak. I can tell how they take a genuine interest in our community. Live intentionally, leverage your influence, and leave an impact. Will you pray with me? Father God, we pray that uh, you would give us your outlook, the, the outlook of Paul here as he sits imprisoned, as he is unable to travel and spread your word. Would you please give us the outlook of Paul to see our chains, to see our circumstances, not as obstacles all the time, but as opportunities to represent you. God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts of compassion to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community? And Father, as we prepare our hearts this morning for communion, we are reminded
that you did not send us a memo, that you did not send a movie, you did not send us a uh, picture, but you sent us a person to help us in our deepest need. God, we thank you for Jesus, the greatest missionary of all, the one who came and lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve so that one day we can live in that perfect world and right now we can experience life with you. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.